0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Over the last two episodes, we've been looking into the ways misinformation is fracturing our information ecosystem. For the last seven days, we reached just over 3 million people. What that tells me is that everyone is relying on this type of information now as the truth. And we've seen that conspiracy theories are leading to political unrest and polarization.
2: When disinformation is constantly circulating in that kind of polarized environment,
0: then it becomes a a serious problem.
1: On this episode, we're taking a step away from the pandemic, to tell you a story about online rabbit holes and what happens when misinformation leads to bloodshed.
3: It was a very cold night on January 29, 2017. Sunday night, um, people had gathered for evening prayers at the Centre Couture Islamique de Québec. And, you know, there were children there. There were um, their parents.
2: Amira Al Gawabi is recounting one of the darkest days in Quebec's history.
3: And so, on the main floor uh, where uh, the men had just finished prayer, an individual named Alexandre Bizonets entered the mosque and began shooting indiscriminately at the worshippers. And within a few minutes, as people dived behind, you know, the mosque pillars, died to hide in, in what is a very bare space, uh, just carpeted. Six men had been killed. And so what we know now is that the reason Bissonnette went into the mosque and stormed it the way he did, with a semi-automatic rifle and a pistol, was he just wanted to kill as many Muslims as he could.
2: This all happened on January 29th, 2017. And that date is significant, because two days earlier, then-President Donald Trump had signed an executive order that prevented people from seven predominantly Muslim countries from visiting the United States. The order widely became known as a Muslim ban.
3: And Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, had responded by saying people could come to Canada, that Canada would be a place that was safe for those fleeing persecution. Later, during his trial, Alexandre Bissanet said when he
2: learned about Trudeau's plan, he was horrified. He said, I don't want us to become like Europe. They're going to kill my parents, my family. I had to
3: do something. But where did those ideas come from? He had been almost obsessed uh, with narratives around Muslims as a danger to Quebec society, that he had been browsing websites that were linked to white nationalist ideologues. He had apparently made over 800 online searches of US President Donald Trump. Clearly, he had been really affected by the terrible narratives and dangerous narratives that he had found online.
1: I'm Taylor Owen.
2: And I'm Supriya Devetti. On this season of Screen Time, we're trying to figure out how we ended up in a world where facts are fluid and your reality is a reflection of your ideology.
1: From TVO Today, Antica Productions, and the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University, This is Screen Time, the battle for reality.
3: All right, I'm a bit rusty. It's been... Don't worry about it. In a way, it's a good thing that I'm rusty because it's usually when, usually it's bad news that I'm responding to, so.
2: Amira al Gawabi might be best known as Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia, but her resume is long
3: and varied. I wear several hijabs. I'm a human rights advocate based in Ottawa. I write for the Toronto Star and I am the director of communications at the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. After the mosque attack in
2: 2017, Amira wrote several op-eds trying to understand why Bisanet might have done something like this. What she found was that he'd fallen down a
3: far-right internet rabbit hole. We found through these court documents that he had been looking at a variety of far-right individuals online, many of them sort of creating anger, uh, feeding that anger machine that we've come to learn is um, further fueled by algorithms that pull individuals deeper and deeper into these sort of anger tornadoes online, where people are more and more exposed to that mix of real stories about things that are happening in the world, but that are given a whole other spin, if you will, that creates an alternative reality. And it's very difficult, it feels like, to address these lies in this alternative world. No one seems to have figured out how to do that.
2: Adix-on world was shaped by conservative commentators like Tucker Carlson and white nationalists like Richard Spencer and David Duke. But there was one idea that seemed to define Bissonnette's worldview more than any other. The Great Replacement. The Great Replacement is a conspiracy theory concocted in 2010 by a French author named Renaud Camus, which claims that global elites are conspiring to replace white Europeans with people of color. It's an update on an idea that's been around for centuries,
3: but it's taken on a new life on the Internet. Extremist individuals, often young men, who are looking for something to sort of latch on to, they take on this idea of the Great Replacement Theory, and they view therefore others as a risk to their own survival, to the survivor of, quote, the white race. And you've seen this play out through various attacks against not just Muslim communities around the world, but Jewish communities, Asian communities, black communities. You've seen this happening in the US, in Europe, etc. We saw it in New Zealand, we saw it in Buffalo. In 2019,
2: 51 Muslims were killed in an attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, And in 2022, 10 Black people were murdered by a gunman in Buffalo, New York. In both cases, the white perpetrators cited the Great Replacement Theory as the underlying motivation for their actions.
3: This theory, this idea, has become almost a rallying cry of this type of right-wing extremist ideology.
2: Much of this conspiratorial, alt-right content is consumed online. And by nudging people like Alexandre Bissanet towards increasingly radical content, social media has almost certainly fueled this kind of violent extremism. But the racist, xenophobic ideas that shape something like the Great Replacement Theory were around long before Facebook and YouTube.
3: There is this creation in the public mind over decades, and in particular, of course, since 9-11, where Muslim equals terrorist. That has sort of really been a mainstay of Western media, and it's gotten better, but certainly, overall, the arc has been. You've seen several studies, for instance, that show over, I think, the course of 20 years, Muslims were mentioned in the New York Times more negatively than cocaine or cancer. In other words,
2: Islamophobia wasn't created by the internet. It's ingrained into Western culture and is often perpetuated by mainstream media. Maybe that's why it was disturbing, but not totally surprising that the Quebec City mosque attack, an attack rooted in Islamophobic conspiracy theories, somehow managed to give rise
3: to yet more Islamophobic conspiracy theories. I was at the National Council of Canadian Muslims at the time as our comms director, and the first call that came through from the media was I think around midnight from a radio show in Montreal uh, that was saying, you know, we've heard that there's been an attack at a mosque. Can you comment? And so there were questions, and we weren't sure what had happened. And in that vacuum, you had right-wing media step in and suggest that this was an inside job, that this was an effort to win sympathy from Canadians, that this was done by a Muslim, or that this was a false flag, that it didn't actually happen. All sorts of conspiracies filled into that vacuum and created a lot of confusion and were used again to foment even more hate towards our communities.
4: Just what happened inside the mosque in Quebec City's Islamic
2: cultural centre is a question that led us at the rebel.media to descend here to Quebec City. In the days following the attack, the far right website Rebel Media sent a correspondent named Faith Goldie to Quebec City.
4: Why hasn't the mainstream media been considering things other than Islamophobia? Is there any relation, say, between one of the victims, who was a professor at the University of Laval? and the university student
3: who allegedly committed this act. Rebel media has been trying to push the idea that this didn't actually happen or that it was someone else who had committed this, not Alexandre Bissonnette.
2: Now, in the moments following the attack, there was some confusion. Police had initially arrested a man named Mohammed Belkhadir, and then quickly released him after they determined he was a witness, not a suspect. But Faith Goldie clung to the idea that someone other than Bissonnette was responsible. For many, there is a certain satisfaction in knowing the sole suspect,
4: Alexandre Bissonnette, is behind bars. But for others, questions still remain why one narrative was altogether deleted and replaced
3: by another. They were trying to create a sense that Muslims were terrorists, even where they were victims in that attack.
4: Quebec has become home to a lot of radicalization. We do know that there are several teens who have fled the province and are understood to be uh, fighting with the Islamic State in
3: Syria. And that has been very dangerous. They have a lot of subscribers. They have a lot of supporters. And they created an entire website to try to counter the real reporting by mainstream media. If you believe in our journalistic
4: mission, I encourage you to go to quebecterror.com and help fund our trip.
0: Rebel Media has been able to make that kind of purveying of hate profitable for themselves and build careers off this.
1: This is Jasmine Zine. She's a professor of sociology at Wilfrid Laurier University, who spent the last couple of years looking into what she calls the Canadian Islamophobia industry.
0: What I mean by that is this is a network that's comprised of media outlets, far-right white nationalist groups, Islamophobia influencers. These are otherwise rather disparate groups, except that there is something common among them, which is an ideological alignment to promoting Islamophobic propaganda. You find the connections between various groups who come together by sharing platforms or amplifying each other's commentary or YouTube
1: videos. Jasmine's been able to trace all these connections, but she says it's hard to say exactly how much the Canadian Islamophobia industry is worth.
0: We cannot follow the money trail in the same way as they were able to do in the United States because we don't have access to the same kind of publicly available records as they do there. But the figures in the United States are staggering. The funding for Islamophobia networks in the United States circulates in the amount of $1.5 billion to around 39 organizations that are dedicated to promoting anti-Muslim propaganda and disinformation campaigns.
1: You heard that right. The American Islamophobia industry is worth $1.5 billion. Just like the anti-vax industry that we looked into last episode, it's hard to say whether this is ideologically or financially motivated. But again, just like the anti-vax industry, there seems to be a lot to gain from peddling these ideas.
0: There is a sense that This kind of rhetoric is profitable in some way, whether it's through achieving political or ideological goals, whether it is to be able to monetize that in some way.
1: But whether the goal is to spread hate or turn a profit, one thing is clear. Disinformation and conspiracy theories are an integral part of the enterprise.
0: Disinformation and the campaigns that are built around it are very much the lifeblood of the Islamophobia industry. There's a central conspiracy that claims that Muslims have been part of a fifth column or Trojan horse in Canada.
1: Sometimes conspiracy theories like this are relegated to the dark corners of the internet.
0: Things like there are Muslim invaders coming.
1: But every once in a while, they spill into the mainstream.
0: There's an adage that says that if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it.
1: And that's exactly what happened in the aftermath of the Quebec City mosque shooting.
0: We know the Liberals hate us. They, they make that clear. I think they're going to use this as an excuse to shut us up.
1: This is the founder of Rebel Media, Ezra Levant, speaking to Faith Goldie after her trip to Quebec City. I think they're going to try something legally. Do you think so? You yeah, report I,
0: on M103.
4: I, absolutely. We're the ones who, who brought it to the public attention Then it was picked up in the sun and the National Post thereafter.
1: After the attack in Quebec City, A Liberal MP named Ikra Khaled introduced Motion 103 to Parliament. M103 called on the government to condemn Islamophobia. Like many parliamentary motions, it was pretty toothless. Nothing in it was legally binding. But rebel media told its viewers that the government was coming for their freedom.
4: And 103, this motion that aims to censor people for daring to offend the prophet. I mean, it, it is it is Sharia creep. It is, in a way, blasphemy law, or at least in its emotion form. And I know this is a, 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 an attack in which six men were killed. I condemn this attack, but that doesn't mean I'm about to give up my liberty.
0: And what happened afterwards was a coordinated effort to undermine Motion 103.
2: Here's Jasmine Zeen recalling how M103 was weaponized by the Islamophobia industry.
0: That brought different sectors of the Islamophobia industry together in very concerted ways to undermine efforts to address Islamophobia in this country. In many
2: ways, those efforts seem to work. Ikra Khalid, the Liberal MP, said she received more than 90,000 hate emails in the first two months after she tabled M103. And on my old radio show, anytime I tried to explain that M103 was a motion and not a bill, and that it wouldn't curtail free speech or criminalize criticism of Islam, I would be inundated with death and rape threats from listeners who were convinced I was part of the creeping Sharia problem. Here's Amira al gawabi again.
3: M103 became this rallying cry for the far right and where we started to see rallies across Canada trying to link this motion with the coming of Sharia law in Canada. And sadly, some of the conservative politicians who are vying for the leadership of the party latched onto that.
2: When rebel media organized a rally to protest M103, four conservative leadership candidates showed up to give speeches. One of those people was former MP Kelly Leach, who famously tweeted a petition to stop M103, accompanied by an image of a white woman with tape over her mouth. And when it came time to vote on the motion, all but two members of the conservative caucus voted against it. Just like that, what had started out as a baseless conspiracy theory had become a legitimate political talking point.
1: Now, conspiracy theories have always had a home on the internet, on message boards, social media, and fringy YouTube channels. But the story of M103 is proof that conspiracy theories are no longer relegated to the web. They're being picked up in news stories and in stump speeches.
5: We're so disproportionately focused on what's happening on the platforms, when really, where the audience is, is still cable news. It's the politicians podium, like that, ultimately is the
1: goal. Claire Wardle is the co-director of the Information Futures Lab at Brown University. She's developed something she calls the trumpet of amplification to explain how a conspiracy theory, like the Great Replacement, or the rumors about M103, might travel through our information ecosystem.
5: Many people were talking about this in the 90s. But in the context of what we're looking at now, the ability for anybody to basically start a rumor and to start that rumor in a niche space with other people who believe deeply in this.
1: Those niche spaces are often message boards like Reddit and 4chan.
5: If I find other people who are susceptible to believe this, I know that I don't have a large audience, but I might have a very small number of people who become passionate around pushing this and repeating this idea.
1: Then it might move into messaging apps like WhatsApp, Signal or Telegram, picking up steam every step of the way.
5: A few more people see it and again get angry and passionate about it. Then it might move to maybe let's say a conspiratorial YouTube video that again might not have huge viewership, but as you can see, the viewership is increasing. It then might end up on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook.
1: For a long time, the top of the amplification trumpet was mainstream news. The ultimate goal was to have your conspiracy theory end up on CNN or on the front page of the New York Times. But recently, that's started to change.
5: When we created the trumpet of amplification, it was early 2018, and the end of the trumpet really was the news media. And then it became very clear with President Trump that actually it often wasn't the news media that were mistakenly being hoaxed. They were caught in this horrible trap of what do we do when politicians are saying these things? And it wasn't just Trump increasingly. It was a whole host of different politicians. And again, not just the US, that it became even more important for those who were trying to manipulate to convince the politicians to be the spokespeople. Because once they said it, I mean, there's no way that you can't report on the president.
1: And this particular president propagated a lot of misinformation. According to fact-checkers at the Washington Post, Donald Trump told more than 30,000 lies over the course of his presidency.
5: I would say that the cost-benefit analysis around lying has changed, where previously the norm was you don't want to be caught lying. Now the cost-benefit analysis is, if I lie, what's the worst that can happen? Because we know now from psychology that repetition and familiarity means our brains are actually more likely to remember the rumor, and the fact-checking only goes so far. And I think fundamentally, the lesson here was about oxygen, and the lesson was oxygen is a good thing.
1: This is where the social media platforms come in, and the politicians who know how to game their algorithms.
5: Somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene has figured out, every time she tweets, the amount of hate quote tweets she gets is only a good thing.
1: Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Republican congressperson who once blamed wildfires in California on space lasers controlled by a cabal of Jewish bankers. And when she tweets outlandish things like that, they often get shared, not just by her supporters, but by her critics too.
5: Like she's looking for people to quote
1: tweet her. Even if they're mad, it means that
5: her name has become a household name And I think those dynamics, nobody really understood that in the political sphere. I think in the right-wing influencer sphere, that was understood. These kind of alt-right figures who realized that the more extreme they were, the more oxygen they got, the more they were discussed, and the more book deals and speeches they got signed up for, and more the money flowed in. And then exactly the same mechanism started to be very clear in politics. There is no reason right now for not lying.
1: So we have a social media ecosystem that incentivizes the sensational and the outrageous and is agnostic about the truth. And now politicians are taking advantage of those mechanics too. Claire Wardle's not optimistic about what this means for the rest of us.
5: I mean, I think many of us who back in 2016 and 2017 got on the like misinformation conference train, and I think some of us were like, if we don't take this seriously in 30 years, We might have a complete distrust in elections. We might have violence. I don't think any of us thought that we'd have the convoy in Canada, the January 6th insurrection. I mean, I remember speaking to a vaccine doctor who said, we used to pray for a pandemic because we thought that would make the anti-vaxxers go away. We never believed that we'd be in a situation when routine immunizations are now on the decline. Every single issue that you care about, whether it's climate, reproductive health, mental health, anything is now so fundamentally Polluted in terms of how people understand the information space, how they understand each other. I still don't think we're anywhere near the ability to counter the problem, and that's that's terrifying.
1: If we're going to have a shot at tackling the big issues that Claire is talking about, then we all need to be operating from the same baseline set of facts. Without that, our democracy just can't function. And we've been so busy fighting amongst ourselves that we've failed to realize that that's exactly what countries like China and Russia want. What they've become extremely good at is identifying the most polarizing issues in Western societies and then exploiting them, pouring fuel onto them, adding disinformation, conspiracies to pull us further apart. Yes, there was a degree of Russian involvement in kind of inflaming the issue. I don't think they were supporting the convoy. You know, they don't usually have a side. It's just kind of chaos. That's next time on Screen Time, the battle for reality. The Battle for Reality is written and produced by Mitchell Stewart. It's hosted by Sapria Dovetti and me, Taylor Owen. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Our executive producers are Stuart Cox and Laura Regeer. Lori Few is the executive producer of digital at TVO. Shariar Tadvidi. Is the Managing Editor of Podcasts and Digital Video at TVO. If you want to know where we got our information from, we've included an annotated transcript in the show notes.